0: I'm dermatologist and hair specialist, Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. This is the February 7th, 2022 issue of Evidence-Based Hair, Season 1, Episode 1. The first Monday of each month is dedicated to highlighting the latest research in androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. We'll be talking today about 10 studies including oral minoxidil and oral spironolactone for treating female pattern hair loss, eczema laser for alopecia areata, and an association between diseases of the retina and alopecia areata. Of course, we've got a whole lot more to cover as well. This podcast is for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. We'll start with subjects related to androgenetic hair loss. A study published online in the January issue of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology compares 0.25 milligrams of oral minoxidil versus 1 mg for the treatment of female pattern hair loss, This was a small study but highlighted that one milligram seems to be a little bit better for treating female pattern hair loss than 0.25 milligrams the authors looked at improvement in hair density they looked at reductions in shedding improvement in photographs and then improvement in quality of life and the authors were able to show that one milligram of oral minoxidil increases Density in a little target area slightly better than the 0.25 milligram dose. When photographs were compared in these two groups, there really wasn't much of a change in photography, suggesting that one milligram is really not that different than 0.25 milligrams, even though the uh, square centimeter micrographic improvements were better. But 67% of patients on one milligram had a slightly improved density or a substantially improved density by photography, compared to 42.9% using 0.25 milligrams, but the authors couldn't find a statistical difference between these photography observations. Both groups had a reduction in shedding, whether it was the Sinclair scale for shedding that the authors used, or the Martinez-Velasco scale, um, suggesting that Both groups reduce shedding. Both groups slightly uh, improve density. So an interesting study, a small study, uh, highlights that 0.25 milligrams and one milligram probably do something for patients with female pattern hair loss. One milligram tends to be slightly better in this small study. I think this is helpful. It really reminds us that uh, oral minoxidil certainly is an off-label treatment option that we can all be considering. Uh, Even 0.25 milligrams probably does something. But one milligram is probably better. So can we use oral minoxidil in patients that are allergic to topical minoxidil? Well, a study published February 2022 in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology suggests that indeed we can. And the references for all these studies, of course, will be uh, in the notes accompanying uh, today's uh, issue. This was a study of nine female patients who patch tested positive to topical minoxidil. They're allergic to topical minoxidil, but they were treated with oral minoxidil. So they used oral minoxidil anywhere from 0.25 milligrams twice daily for a range of seven to 33 months. So a low dose, 0.25 milligrams twice daily, that's 0.5 milligrams total. But none of these patients had any side effects and they were all satisfied with the results. So this is an interesting study. topical minoxidil allergy is not uncommon fortunately it's not super common but it's not uncommon oral minoxidil provides an option this study looked at 0.5 milligrams total dose do we know what one milligrams or 1.5 milligrams would uh present would it present an issue in these patients that are allergic to topical minoxidil we don't know Can it be used in men at 2.5 and 5 milligrams, which we commonly use? We don't know. But nevertheless, it it highlights that oral minoxidil still may be quite safe for for a large number of patients. Pretty interesting study and and pretty helpful. How good is oral spironolactone? Spironolactone is an off-label use for androgenetic hair loss in women, has been for many decades, A systematic review published in the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology in February highlights that it's helpful in over half of patients. This was a systematic review of 12 prior studies, including 286 patients. Spironolactone in prior studies is often used in combination with other treatments like minoxidil, laser, but in this review... 23% of patients were using oral spironolactone as monotherapy. In other words, that was their only treatment. Doses ranged from 25 milligrams right up to 200 milligrams. And the study showed that 49.3% of patients using spironolactone as monotherapy, or as the only therapy, achieved improvement. Spironolactone was better at doses 100 and 200 milligrams than 50 milligrams. So... Very interesting study. Really highlights that spironolactone definitely is on the list of treatment options for female androgenetic hair loss. Um, Not everybody really knows about spironolactone and is comfortable with spironolactone, but certainly a very old treatment. Side effects are common, and this systematic review highlighted a number of side effects, including dizziness, headaches. The Most common side effect was acne in this review, 50% of patients in this study had acne, irregular periods were found in 25%, dizziness ranged anywhere from 2 to 16%, but other side effects were somewhat uncommon. So the prior studies in the literature suggest that about a third of patients using oral spironolactone are going to have side effects. So we need to do a lot of counselling in our patients that we prescribe this to, but about two or three percent of patients are going to uh, abandon treatment on account of side effects. So if we do a good job counseling, you know, a large percentage of patients are going to be ready for some side effects and and many will tolerate them. Um, I like this systematic review. I thought it was great. I think it gives us a number that we can give to patients. About 50 percent of patients are going to improve. It also tells us that, you know, 100 milligrams is better than 50 milligrams and i think there's a lot of debate in the literature there's a lot of debate amongst dermatologists some dermatologists really like 25 and 50 milligrams sometimes we like it because these doses don't give many side effects but this dose seems to be inferior to 100 milligrams so we got to keep that in mind this review highlighted that hypertrichosis or increased hair on the face is seen in about 4% of patients using spironolactone. I think that's interesting. I think some patients do report hypertrichosis, and our feeling is that that doesn't make any sense. Spironolactone grows hair on the scalp, removes hair from the face. How are you reporting hypertrichosis? Well, it's a side effect in 4% of patients, so we got to keep that in mind. From there, we move on to a side effect of spironolactone that was addressed in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology January 2022 online and that relates to hyperkalemia or high potassium in the clinic we often think of two patient groups patients under 45 and patients over 45 who are receiving spironolactone patients under 45 we think that if they're healthy not on other medications don't have kidney disease or liver disease we probably don't have to test potassium levels. In women over 45, perhaps we need to test potassium levels. And that's based on a number of studies in the literature. Well, this study addressed that very topic. How likely is it to have hyperkalemia or high potassium? This was a retrospective review of female patients that were using oral spironolactone between May 2012 and June 2020. There's 195 patients in this study by Plante and colleagues. Three patients, 1.5% had hyperkalemia or high potassium. And when you actually look at this study, it was definitely related to um, the patient's age or treatment in one patient. And so that's 0.5%. That's a pretty low incidence of hyperkalemia. The other two patients didn't have hyperkalemia when their blood tests were repeated. And so it's an interesting study. The patient that had hyperkalemia was a 65-year-old Asian patient. She was on Losartan, which is an, um, a blood pressure medication in ARB. So that is in itself a risk factor. The age is a risk factor. And so I think this really reminds us that this kind of guideline that we have or should have in the clinic. Under 45, probably don't need blood tests. Over 45, we should be routinely using blood tests. I think that's really helpful. Um, so I think that's a, a pretty helpful kind of guideline to be working with when we use spironolactone. Now, this study by Plante and colleagues wasn't a study about androgenetic hair loss. These 195 patients were using spironolactone for androgenetic hair loss, acne, hirsutism, uh, but nevertheless, it's a, a pretty helpful, helpful study for us. The thing to remember when you have high potassium is it's the number one lab error. And so if you have patients with hyperkalemia, one of the most important things is to take a history. Do they have chest pain, palpitations, muscle weakness, nausea, vomiting? That's where serious hyperkalemia symptoms come in. But don't forget to repeat the blood tests. Hyperkalemia is a super common lab error. So repeat the blood test by all means. And that really is an important pearl. And um, that comes up in this study as well. From adults, we move to children. We move to adolescents. Ozcan is a um, researcher from Turkey, published an interesting study in the January online issue of um, this Brazilian uh, dermatology journal, and it addresses pediatric androgenetic hair loss. Children can get androgenetic hair loss. Adolescents can get androgenetic hair loss. Anywhere from 0.5 to 2% of high school students are thought to have early onset androgenetic hair loss. So what are the features of androgenetic hair loss in this age group? Well, this isn't the largest study by any means, but it's an interesting study. The author addressed androgenetic hair loss in 23 pediatric patients. 23 of these patients were divided into 12 females, 11 males, the median age was 15.3. 16 patients had adolescent-onset androgenetic hair loss, which is androgenetic hair loss between puberty and age 18. Seven had childhood-onset androgenetic hair loss, which is androgenetic hair loss before puberty. So what are the features of these patients with early-onset androgenetic hair loss before age 18? Well, family history of androgenetic hair loss in mom, dad, first-degree relatives occurred in only 56.3% of adolescent-onset androgenetic hair loss. And a family history occurred in none of the childhood-onset androgenetic hair loss. I thought that was really, really interesting. When you have children and adolescents in front of you with androgenetic hair loss, don't expect to find a family history. It may not be present. The most common comorbidity was acne followed by obesity followed by insulin resistance the reason i like this study so much is it highlights that 60 percent of children and adolescents with androgenetic hair loss have risk factors for metabolic syndrome including obesity insulin resistance high blood pressure and hypertension so when you have a child or an adolescent with androgenetic hair loss You really need to do some good screening. You need to ask a lot of questions. You need to do some blood tests. That's mandatory in this patient group. Elevated glucose was seen in 13%. High androgens were seen in 8.7%. Hypertension, high, high blood pressure was found in 4%. So a lot of these patients are healthy, but obesity is common. Insulin resistance is common, and you're going to find occasional hypertension. We think of early onset androgenetic hair loss as as a phenomenon where this child or this teenager probably has high androgens driving the androgenetic hair loss. That's just not true. Hyperandrogenism is seen in 4% of patients. So we need to do the blood tests. But, you know, keep in mind that many of these patients don't have hyperandrogenism. Crown thinning. Is super common and males in this study fifty four point five percent of males had thinning in the crown women had thinning in the crown as well but that was seen in only a third and a third of female patients under the age of 18 had thinning in the front in a triangular pattern or the so-called Olson pattern really interesting study you're going to encounter patients with early onset androgenetic hair loss good histories good blood tests are going to be critical in these patients What about eye anomalies? Do we need to be familiar with eye abnormalities in the setting of androgenetic hair loss? Well, maybe in our patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome who come to see us for androgenetic hair loss, this is a a study from the ophthalmology literature, and it was published in January online in Ophthalmic Genetics. Eye issues in patients with PCOS are really not well understood, And patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome come to see us for androgenetic hair loss. It's the most common endocrine issue in women of reproductive age. And so this was a study of 100 healthy controls compared to 103 women with PCOS. Women with PCOS had more frequent eye abnormalities, including abnormalities of the anterior segment, abnormalities of the optic nerve, of the retina, and dry eye. And this was statistically significant myopia or nearsightedness was similar in patients with PCOS compared to controls this is a uh, one of the first of its kind suggesting that you know PCOS may be associated with these eye abnormalities obviously more studies are needed but this is a very interesting study here we move to some basic laboratory research and a study published in the journal of investigative dermatology online in january suggests that blood vessels seem to be disappearing in the course of androgenetic hair loss, especially these blood vessels in the dermal papilla. Now, androgenetic hair loss is a process by which thick terminal hairs get converted into miniaturized hairs. And the pathogenesis, or the basic science underlying androgenetic hair loss, has been an important topic for decades upon decades and certainly is a really important topic now. The dermal papilla, as you might know, is the structure at the bottom of the hair follicle. It's the boss of the hair follicle. It controls how hairs grow. It controls how thick hair follicles are. The bigger the dermal papilla, the bigger the hairs that we get. And dermal papillas start shrinking and and apoptosing, dying during the course of androgenetic hair loss. Dermal papilla, these, these cellular structures, are fed by blood vessels, And so this study looked at the differences in dermal papilla and blood vessels during the course of balding, and they compared normal scalp or non-balding scalp to balding scalp. And what these authors found in this Journal of Investigative Dermatology study is that during the course of androgenetic hair loss, there's a greater amount of androgen receptor and a greater amount of androgen receptor in the nucleus of these dermal papilla. And They looked at all these different gene differences in balding versus normal scalp and there's over 1600 differences in gene expression between balding and non-balding scalp and one of the highlights they had is that there's a difference in blood vessels or the difference in these microvascular uh, gene array expression what happens in androgenetic hair loss is the dermal papilla blood vessels seem to be vanishing. That's the term the authors used, I like that. As we bald, our dermal papilla blood vessels vanish. The other blood vessels in the scalp stay there, they're normal, they're not affected. The authors showed that TGF beta, transforming growth factor beta, is increasing in an androgen receptor dependent manner, and that may be directly causing these dermal papilla blood vessels to apatose or die. So it's an interesting study. Highlights that, you know, dermal papilla blood vessels are, are associated with androgenetic hair loss. They're disappearing. And the authors propose that, you know, maybe we should be starting treatment earlier in patients with androgenetic hair loss to save these dermal papilla blood vessels. Another study looked at the pathogenesis of androgenetic hair loss from the perspective of fibrosis. A study published in the January issue of the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology looked at how fibrosis changes during the course of androgenetic hair loss. Specifically, fibrosis expression in the bulge region. The bulge is this region in the top part of the hair follicle. The bulge of the hair follicle has stem cells. And studies have shown that during the course of balding, we lose our ability to convert these stem cells into cells that can produce new hair follicles. And this may be associated with increased expression of these fibrosis markers or these markers of scarring. And so this study from China set out to look at how fibrosis changes during the course of miniaturization. So there was 10 patients in their study, eight with androgenetic hair loss and and two with controls. And the researchers took 30 hair follicles from each of these 10 patients, so that's 300 hair follicles to work with, and they divided them according to size, early, mid, late. So early androgenetic hair loss were follicles that were 80 to 100 micrometers in thickness, mid was 60 to 80 micrometers, and they called this late stage androgenetic hair loss 0 to 60 micrometers, so really thinner hair follicles, and what they found is that in mid- and late-stage androgenetic hair loss, you see an accumulation of these spindled-shaped cells, these mesenchymal-like cells. And of course, these are the cells that, that we propose uh, in, in the science world as contributing to the production of scar tissue. 90% of patients with mid- and late-stage androgenetic hair loss had these spindled cells, compared to just 12% of patients with early androgenetic hair loss and and 4 to 5% of normal scalps. And the authors also show that as androgenetic hair loss progresses, you get an increasing expression of markers of fibrosis. This includes vimentin, fibronectin, HSP-47, and S100A4. These are all markers of fibrosis. And so the authors propose that during the course of miniaturization, you get more and more of these mesenchymal-like cells and more and more production of fibrosis. Now, this study didn't actually look at protein expression of fibrosis, but looked at, you know, expression nevertheless um, at the the gene level. But it suggests that fibrosis increases during during the, the course of androgenetic hair loss, and this may be directly related to a diminution of the size of hair follicles so interesting study do medications that block fibrosis help androgenetic hair loss well the study suggests that they they may be related do medications that promote blood vessels to uh, proliferate and and do medications that save blood vessels from dying during the course of androgenetic hair loss help androgenetic hair loss? Well, of course, we don't know. But these two basic studies suggest that these are relevant topics. From androgenetic hair loss, we turn to alopecia areata. Do you use eczema laser in your practice? How good is eczema laser? What number are you going to quote patients who are wondering how good is eczema laser? Well, a study last year, a meta-analysis of nine studies of 100. patients 129 patients suggested that you know eczema laser probably helps about 50 percent of patients with patchy alopecia areata and so a new study published online in photodermatology photoimmunology photomedicine looked at the use of eczema laser in alopecia areata and suggested that that's a pretty good number 50 percent of patients with patchy alopecia areata seem to improve So this was a study of 36 patients, 29 had less than 50% of the scalp involved, and seven patients had more than 50% of the scalp involved. And 52% of patients with patchy alopecia areata had a significant improvement, which they said was a 75% reduction in the SALT score, which is a score for alopecia areata, and so 52% That seems to be a pretty good number in the dermatology literature and the hair loss literature that we can quote patients. Interestingly, three of four patients with ophiasis, which is alopecia areata at the back of the scalp, didn't have any benefit. Patients with severe forms of alopecia areata can benefit from eczema laser, but it seems to be that they need combination treatments with other types of treatments. I like this study because it addressed pediatric patients as well. There were 11 patients in this study under the age of 18, and 7 of the 8 pediatric patients with patchy alopecia areata had a good response to eczema laser. None of the patients with ophiasis or alopecia totalis or advanced alopecia areata had any benefit, but nevertheless, 7 of 8 patients did. So eczema laser deserves a spot on our list of treatments for alopecia areata. It's not a first-line treatment. And whether you consider it a second line or a third line treatment depends on where you're situated, where your clinic is, uh, the cost of eczema laser, whether it's covered by patients' drug plans, and who in your city, town, state, country does eczema laser. But nevertheless, it's a helpful study. 50% of patients are going to have some benefit if they have early-staged alopecia areata. Not a good option for late-stage alopecia areata. Let's go back to eye diseases for a minute. We talked about the increased risk of eye abnormalities in polycystic ovarian syndrome. You know, when you look at the literature, there's eye abnormalities that we need to know about in other eye, other hair loss conditions. A study in 2018 suggested that patients with lichen planopilaris, which is a scarring hair loss condition, have an increased risk of mebomium gland dysfunction or dry eye type uh, syndromes. And this was a study in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology Online, which suggested that patients with alopecia areata also have a risk of retinal diseases. So this was a study from Taiwan that set out to examine the relationship between alopecia areata and diseases of the retina. They compared 9,909 patients with alopecia areata compared to 99,000 controls. And what they found is that the risk of retinal detachment was increased about fourfold, retinopathy was increased threefold, and retinal vascular occlusion was increased twofold in patients with alopecia areata compared to controls. I think this is an interesting study. The risk of eye diseases in alopecia areata really hasn't received a lot of attention. There has been studies in the past which have suggested that maybe it's an issue, But this is an interesting study which highlights that it's a subject area that perhaps we need to pay a lot more attention to. And finally, I return to a basic laboratory-type study in alopecia areata looking at histone deacetylase in alopecia areata. What is histone deacetylase? Well, to understand histone deacetylase, you need to understand histone acetyltransferase, which is an enzyme that attaches acetate groups to proteins. And histone deacetylase removes acetate groups from proteins, especially proteins known as histones, which are in the DNA. And when you add acetate groups to these histone proteins, the DNA unfolds uh, in a manner so that you can change gene expression. And when you when histone deacetylase is around, these acetate groups are removed and the proteins Uh, are no longer there, and the the histone proteins fold better, and it changes gene expression yet again. And histone deacetylase inhibitors are well known to cancer doctors. There are several histone deacetylase inhibitors that are approved. There's five of them that are approved for lymphoma and multiple myeloma, Um, and these are really important in in the cancer field. Other fields of medicine really haven't found uh, uses for these in the same way. Varinostat, panobinostat, uh, bilinostat, Um, these are types of histone uh, acetylase um, inhibitors, deacetylase inhibitors that are well known to cancer doctors. So this was a study which looked at histone deacetylase uh, expression in patients with alopecia areata compared to acne, compared to healthy controls, and blood samples were collected in these 76 patients and subjected to ELISA measurements. Histone deacetylase activity was highest in alopecia areata, lower in acne, and quite low in control patients, but it was the highest in acne, uh, and higher in alopecia areata. So can we use histone deacetylase inhibitors in alopecia areata? Well, we don't know yet. Um, Histone deacetylase inhibitors are being explored in several autoimmune diseases, the current five drugs that are FDA-approved for cancer are quite expensive. They have a number of side effects, so it probably isn't that these drugs will be explored. But there is a long, long list of medications in the world that are histone deacetylase inhibitors. Even valproic acid, which is an anti-seizure medication, is well known to have histone deacetylase activity. But there's a list of dozens upon dozens of of drugs, including natural pharmaceuticals that have histone deacetylase activities. Do they have any role in alopecia areata? Well, we don't know, but this study highlights that it's an important subject area to explore. And that's it for this week, everyone. To recap, we reviewed oral minoxidil in patients that are allergic to topical minoxidil. It seems to be a valid treatment options, even if you're allergic. Uh, we talked about oral minoxidil at the one milligram dose versus 0.25 milligrams. One milligram seems to be a bit better. Oral spironolactone helps about 50% of patients with androgenetic hair loss, rarely causes hyperkalemia. Pediatric alopecia, androgenetic alopecia is uncommon. A good history is needed. Good blood tests are needed. Insulin resistance, hypertension, uh, obesity are found in our pediatric patients. There may be eye diseases in PCOS, and during the course of balding, the blood vessels seem to be dying in the dermal papilla, and there's an increased expression of fibrosis. We talked about eczema laser in alopecia areata. Probably helps about 50% of patients with patchy alopecia areata. We talked about this two to four-fold increased risk of retinal diseases in alopecia areata, and this increased uh, increased incidence of high histone deacetylase activity. Whether we can explore the use of histone deacetylase inhibitors is a subject for the future. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Evidence-Based Hair. This is our very first episode of Season 1. Let us know what you think about our content. Please rate us or give us a comment wherever you're listening. If you want to connect with our office, you can at any time. Info at DonovanHairAcademy.com. Next week, we're back addressing the four Ts and recent studies in telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, uh, tinea capitis, and trichotillomania. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back here next week on Evidence-Based Hair.